Hello, friends, and welcome to episode 141 of the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm assistant to Peter Lightheart, the president of Theopolis Institute. Theopolis Institute trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs will learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are very excited to announce to you that Dr. Alistair Roberts is joining Theopolis as an adjunct senior fellow. In this episode, Peter Lightheart interviews Alistair to give you a sense of who he is and what his interests are, as well as what he's going to bring to the table at Theopolis. As many of you know, Dr. Roberts recently taught a course for Theopolis on a theology of the sexes, which I've put a link to in the show notes. I've also put a link to Dr. Roberts' articles on our website, as well as his other endeavors. We are very excited here at Theopolis to have Alistair on board. With that, we really hope that you enjoy this conversation, and as always, thank you so much for listening. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. This is Peter Leichhardt, and I'm here today with Brian Motes, and also very delighted to be here today with Alistair Roberts, uh, who is a newly appointed adjunct senior fellow at Theopolis. Alistair is uh, currently living in the United Kingdom and hoping to move to the United States sometime later this year, and he will be uh, working for several different organizations once he comes to the United States, splitting his time among uh, three different groups, uh, the Theopolis Institute, the Davenant Institute, and Greystone Theological Institute. And uh, we're delighted to have Alistair uh, giving a part of his time and energies to us at uh, Theopolis. Uh, Alistair comes with an impressive resume of uh, writing and uh, podcasting and uh, uh, and intellectual activity. Uh, we're re- very excited to have him aboard and uh, look forward to ex- exploiting him as much as we can. Um, Alistair will be joining joining me regularly on the Theopolis podcast for the lectionary. Uh, he'll be teaching in uh, our various programs, uh, teaching an occasional intensive course. Uh, he'll be teaching in our fellows program, uh, and we have some other projects that we're discussing, and uh, Alistair will play an important role in those. So, um, uh, Alistair, uh, welcome to the team. Uh, very good to have you. Thank you very much. It's wonderful to be on board. Uh, what I want to do today is just spend some time uh, uh, getting to know you, getting uh, your background, letting our listeners know something more about you. I suspect that many of them do know you from your online writing and your other podcast uh, outlets. Uh, but for those who aren't aware of you and your uh, your uh, your life, your history, uh, your interests, uh, I want to spend some time just uh uh, ha- giving you an opportunity to talk about uh, talk about those things. Just start and tell us a little bit about your life story. Uh, where where did you come from, uh, and uh, how did you come to be who you are? <laughs> it's a long story. Um, I was born in Worcester in the Midlands in England, but my parents were missionaries in the Republic of Ireland, so I moved over there when I was three months old and spent the entirety of my childhood there. It was a very Catholic country at the time, um, about 90% Catholic. And over the course of that time, it became more secular as various scandals and other things arose surrounding the church and child abuse in the church and its involvement within the government. But it was a very a very devout country, but there was also a lot of superstition. I was the, um, for much of the time, I was... When in my school, I was the English Protestant within a school of Irish Catholics during a period where the troubles in Northern Ireland were still ongoing. So it wasn't always a happy experience. But for the most part, I had a very happy childhood. I have three younger brothers and have a small church within the town of Clonmel that I was raised in. Very friendly and a very... um Yes, it was a it was a pioneer situation. My parents planted the church, and so there was a great sense of the need to um, come together for the things that were the most important. To be people who were shaped by God's word, who recognised our difference from the world, 
and the importance of maintaining a faithful witness within that situation. Our house was always a site of um, activity. There were many people coming in. My parents helped. I was travellers. We would often have someone working with us as part of a mission team. We would have people who were um, struggling with homelessness, alcoholism, people who had been on the streets and people recovering drug addicts, things like that, staying in our house for long periods of time. So there's a sense of our house as a site of activity for mission. It's a site of production. My dad had a business that he set up for um, a publishing business, Tentmaker Publications, which republishes old Puritan texts and other things like that. And it was also a site of books. So my dad at a certain, maybe at the height, probably had nearing 10,000 books in the house. So I was always surrounded by books. So it's not entirely surprising that I got into theology as I did. Also, my parents were very committed to teaching me and my brother's scripture to really ground us within its truth. So from an early age, we were fairly deeply rooted within the biblical text, within the stories, not just the familiar ones from the Gospels and various other places in the, in the Old Testament, but the odd stories that you find within the book of Judges and within certain parts of the historical parts of Scripture. We read the prophets, we learnt Psalms, and that really has helped me in the longer term. When I was 16 and moved over to the UK, um, it wasn't an entirely happy move at that point. My parents had left the year before to go over and I'd been left to do an extra year of my education in Ireland staying with a friend and when I moved back over I resented losing a lot of my newfound independence going back to um, being in my parents house and having a lot more restrictions there. I also at that shortly after that time came down with um, a virus and didn't get better for a number of years so I was, I was pretty much out of action with chronic fatigue and that was a period of deep family tension um, largely because I was really angry with my parents for various reasons I turned my back to a large extent upon God and although I didn't I didn't reject him directly I was angry with him and I'd really been doing well in school I'd been flourishing in other ways socially when I'd struggled before and then suddenly all my horizons shrank down as a result of illness and I was just angry about that. But during that period of time I gradually was worked upon by God. Um, there was particularly experience of did some work for my dad um, going through books about the early Methodist preachers and reading, reading some of the stories of their witness and their work for God and their, their sense of a need for holiness, these sorts of things, that just struck me and it convicted me about my own spiritual state. It's, it's one of the things that has really stayed with me, the need for constant conversion in our lives. That the, As a child, I had confessed faith very early on. I'd been baptised at the age of 15, but yet at that point I realised that I had my faith had not grown up. I was running on the fumes of a child's faith when I was in my later teenage years and I needed to sort myself out. And so at that period of time, um, it was reading those sorts of books, those testimonies and biographies that I was challenged. And almost overnight, um, as that at one point that really hit home everything changed the whole environment of the house that I'd really been part of making it toxic by my anger and other things like that that just disappeared and my anger as well disappeared too I've never I've never experienced anything remotely like it since and it was it was quite remarkable and that was a very significant point in my life Shortly after that, I started studying in a local university, maths and philosophy. And when I was travelling to 
the university every day on the bus. I was reading theology, reading Cornelius von Till and um, Robert Raymond's systematic theology. I was reading a number of other systematic theological texts at that time. Started getting into Calvin, um, Burkhoff, other things like that. And I was really finding it stimulating, particularly von Till at that time. And as I was going on with my maths and philosophy, I realised that this is not really where my heart is. So I transferred to study at a Bible school in in Wales, um, Evangelical Theological College of Wales at the time. Um, since then, it's changed its name and its union now. But it was that was a period of deep formation for me. Um, just shortly prior to that time, I got into the work of Jordan initially. And the first time I encountered it a few years previously, I'd been put off by it. I found it far-reaching. I didn't find it very convincing. But as I'd been studying the scripture since then, and particularly through some other people in my church who had been who had set up a Bible study group within a student nurse's home, and I'd been attending and leading that at various points. That had really challenged me to think through these things for myself, to understand scripture, to root myself more fully within it. And then when I came back and revisited Jordan after that period of time, suddenly things started clicking into place and it made so much sense of all the things that I've been studying. And since that point, I haven't really looked back. It was really a crucial moment for me in shaping the way that I thought about scripture. Um, he didn't just teach me how to understand a few odd passages of scripture, but more generally how to read scripture, how to be attentive to scripture and someone who is um, really formed by scripture in its totality, not just as isolated texts, but as an integrated whole. And that was crucially significant for me. Beyond that point, I... Um, I started a blog during my time in um, the Evangelical Theological College of Wales and had a number of other friends there that I engaged in extensive conversation with about uh, biblical theology, about some of these other themes. And that blog has, and interacting online, has been such a crucial part of my theological development. Being within the, a UK context where there are not the same range of theological positions to be exposed to where there aren't the same large organizations and institutions of of conservative christian education where there aren't the same where there isn't the same degree of christian publishing all these sorts of things the internet opened that world up to me it was particularly helpful being part of um at the time Mark Horn set up some forums and participating within there, reading the articles that he published on his website, and then getting into a network of blogs, which I was encouraged to start a blog to be part of. That was a crucial part of my theological development. Being part of that wider conversation exposed me to people like like you and your work, and I think you started your blog in was it about 2003, just shortly before I started mine? And from that point onwards, that world of um, a theological conversation that's um, fairly aerated, but also very stimulating and intense and a sandbox for theological thought where ideas can be tested and um thrown around and explored and investigated in communal conversation. That was a critical aspect of my education. So I had the formal education, but that informal education was probably even more significant. After I finished in the um, Bible school in Wales, I went to St. Andrews where I did a Master's of Theology. Um, I did my dissertation on the subject of prophetic initiation and Pentecost, exploring some of the relationships between events in the Old Testament, Moses in chapters 3 and 4 of 
Exodus, Ezekiel in chapters 1 and 2 of that book, or Jeremiah and Isaiah, and these different accounts of prophets being set apart for their mission, and then connecting that with the story of Pentecost. The whole biblical theological nexus of themes that that opened up for me was was very stimulating. It was something to which Jordan particularly introduced me at first, and I wanted to explore those and unpack them a bit further. After I finished there, I spent a couple of years working in Stoke-on-Trent, where my parents now live and where they've, um, where my dad has been the pastor of a church. And I felt that there was, well, during that period of time when I was working, I had the opportunity to listen to things when I was working. So every single day, I'd listen to at least six hours of lectures um, while I was working. Mostly, I listened through every single one of the 200 lectures by Jordan on Revelation, for instance. I listened through the Bible um, a couple of times all the way through. I listened to lots of philosophical lectures, all these sorts of things while I was working. And I realized that I felt passionate about theology. I wanted to be involved in theological education on some level, and I really should go back and do a PhD. So I applied to various universities and ended up studying in Durham, where my initial topic um, was 16th and 17th century English Bibles and the changing concept of Scripture. I've always been interested in the way that Scripture is something that comes to us in the form of a book, which is a technology, as something that comes with certain forms of engagement that change over time as the form of the book changes. And it seemed to me that in embedding the book within the life of the church, within the liturgy and things like that, we would need to think carefully about the textual form forms that we are accustomed to and that we adopt. And so that PhD topic was designed to wrestle with that particular question, to think about how the changing form of the book changes our concept of scripture more generally. That topic was the one I abandoned in the end because I realised I was spending far too much of my time just going through issues of codicology and history of the book when it was drawing me away from the theological dimensions where my real concerns and passions lay. So I ended up moving to the topic of the Red Sea Crossing and Christian baptism, um, studying the relationship between liturgy and typology. And this, again, is something that I've always found the work of um, Biblical Horizons and then later Theopolis to be very formative in my thinking on this subject and very helpful in getting to grips with the issue of liturgy, how significant liturgy is in our engagement with Scripture and how Scripture needs to move out into our practice of liturgy within the church, our celebration of the sacraments, and then how that moves in turn into our life and witness within the world as we move out beyond the context of the weekly assembly. So as I looked through that subject, it really brought home to me the significance of time um, and the way that time is a medium of participation and connection within scripture in ways that we often don't do justice to within our society, where these things are often seen in more spatial terms. So as I explored that theme, it also was highlighting to me some of the social issues that that we need to grapple with, that we live in a very changed social environment, the context of a secular age has changed the way that we engage with liturgy. Was working with the um, writings of Alexander Schmemann and other people like that, Mark Searle, and people who have highlighted the way in which our social con context changes the way that we experience and engage with Christian liturgy. And thinking about that connection brought home to me the importance of bringing scripture and Christian thought into closer engagement with some of the social questions that we have within our day and age. Now, within many of the conversations that we have about society, scripture and liturgy do not have the ethical force that they should have. The force that they have is being 
appreciated more nowadays than it has been perhaps in decades past. But I think there's a lot of work to do there. And so that's one of the areas where I've been excited with the potential of um, Theopolis's work and maybe something of what I can contribute in my work with it. Can I uh, reach back to a couple things that you talked about earlier? Um, you, you talked about uh, suffering from chronic fatigue for a number of years. I wonder what uh, what brought you out of that? How, what helped? Um, how, how did that... Uh, I saw a recent documentary about chronic fatigue, and I had no idea prior to that just how debilitating it was. And I wonder if you could talk about that a little bit and how that... Uh, fit into your development as a as a as a theologian and as a believer. Yes, um, it took a number of years, and I never recovered the levels of energy that I had beforehand. Um, I still don't have that sort of energy, um, and it there was a period of time just coming to grips with new limits that. I found that I chafed at it at many points, but I suppose to really get over the worst of it took, um, I wasn't recovered for at least five years, something like that. And even then I wasn't completely recovered. So it was, it was a very, uh, it was a very formative experience for me, I think. Tracing God's hand within that sort of experience is difficult, particularly when we're accustomed to thinking about God's presence in the positive events within our life. And if we're experiencing some uplifting things happening and if everything is going according to plan, we think about that as blessing. And yet those experiences of suffering or the experience of just difficulty um, and the closing in of our horizons, that's far harder to understand how God can be present in that. But looking back on those events, there has never been a period of my life that has been more spiritually formative. It forced me to come to grips with myself. Um, whereas when you're in good health, it's very easy to look outside yourself, to be preoccupied with things that um, are open to you within your world. But when that is closed up to you and you just have to deal, be present with yourself and reckon with your own character and your own flaws and your own, your own sinful nature, it's far harder. <laughs> you begin to realize just what a piece of work you can be. And that's really what came home to me during that period of time. It was a very humbling experience. It wasn't a pleasant one. And in any respect, but it it also it also challenged me with the idea that we have our set timetables. I definitely had a set timetable before I was ill. I had a sense of how my life was going to go, the milestones that I'd reach at particular points, and then just as I was, I felt I was setting off on the right foot and everything, and I stumbled at the very outset. And that just, it was, it felt devastating. And I didn't know what to make of that. The whole timetable had been set off and all the things that I'd planned were denied to me. Um, and also I was coming into a new situation where I didn't really have a network of people around me. I hadn't really made a full network of friends at that point. But there were some people that I did get to know during that early period when I was settling in Stoke-on-Trent that really supported me during that period of time. And perhaps more than anything else, they were used by God to minister to me, to challenge me to, um, to do serious business with God during that period of, of time when I might easily have just turned my back completely. And so particularly uh, a man named John and a woman named Anne, they were people I looked up to. They spent time getting in contact with me when I wasn't necessarily 
I wasn't in a more general, accessible context where I'd be around others. They had to go out of their way to spend time with me. And yet they spent a lot of time speaking with me, encouraging me, supporting me, and just building me up in periods when I was experiencing tension with my parents. And they helped to mediate, to bring us back together, and to also bring me back to God. And I think that, again, helped me to realise the significance of the church as something that supports each one of us within our Christian lives, that it's not a, a solo journey. Um, and that's often something that I'm tempted in the direction of an individualism of that type, because I'm a very, I tend to be a more introverted person, someone who can be quite private. And yet I realised at that time how much I need other people. I also realised the significance of the witness of the saints, of the lives of people in times gone by, and how we can draw um, strength and encouragement and direction from those. And when dealing with with long term illness, when there's not a there's not a point where you can say, "Oh, I'm going to be better by then," you don't know when you're going to be better if you're ever going to be better. I mean, I know people who have struggled with this sort of thing for decades and haven't recovered um and so being set right with god didn't make me physically well but it was a, a turning point in in many other respects and as my health did gradually improve it it meant that a lot less of my energy was being worked up into anger <laughs> which does help and it also um it also showed just god's power to work in situations that even when you think that that everything is lost even when you think that um you've completely messed things up things can change dramatically quickly when god works in a situation and that was my experience and it was as if clouds suddenly parted and everything, things changed almost overnight. Not in terms of my physical health, that took a while, but spiritually and in other ways, it was a dramatic change. But dealing with that, that illness, I think, has been... It helped me also to understand how God sometimes gives us limps like he gave... Jacob a limp as a sign of as a token of our encounters with him that we are wounded by these encounters we wrestle with God during these periods and yet the, that limp that we have can be humbling it can force us to work in different ways not to depend upon our own strength and our own um, timetables our own plans but actually to recognize that he is in charge, that he has his own timetable for us, and that also that he's able to work with us and work through us, even when we think that we might have been abandoned and be beyond be beyond salvage in some ways. Yeah, and the the limp that uh, Jacob receives is a not a sign of defeat. Even though it weakens him, it's a sign of his victory that he prevailed with God. Uh, I also, you, yeah. you, yeah. go ahead. Yeah, go uh, you, you grew up in a home with a Reformed Baptist uh, pastor as your father. Uh, you're currently in the Church of England. Uh, uh, tell, tell me about how that transition happen? Uh, how did you move from the Reformed Baptist setting that you were in as a child to uh, your current ecclesial uh, affiliation? The transition was a gradual one. I think it mostly occurred um, in through intense conversations and interactions with ideas online. Um, the Horns Forums and um, the Theologia website were very important influences upon me at that point. And I think they helped me to think 
think through some of the issues involved with baptism. The interesting thing for me was that when my position on baptism shifted, my appreciation of my baptism as a 15-year-old completely, it, it increased manifold. Because to that point, I'd seen it as a validation of my faith before that point. It was uh, looking back to that particular, to my confession of faith as a child, and it was uh, an affirmation of that. It was my act of obedience. It was the declaration of my faith, and it was in my expression of my decision for Christ, all these sorts of things. But yet, having backslid for quite a period of time shortly after my baptism, it's threw all of those things into question. I mean, what use were any of those things when I fell away from them so quickly? But then when I began to think about baptism more in terms of God's action towards us, it changed a lot of this. And for me, it was thinking about it as a promissory seal that really helped, that this is not so much about something that I am doing to express my loyalty and my faith towards Christ, but it is God's gracious expression of his love to me. Um, it's his promise to me that I can grasp onto at any point in my life. It's an unsinkable promise. It's a promise that I can find strength in when I'm feeling that I'm lost. It's something that I can have recourse to at every point in my life. Even 20, 30 years time, it's something that I can return to because God has declared something to me in particular. He has declared something about my body as well, that my body is set apart for resurrection. My body is something that is the temple of his Holy Spirit. It's my body are my limbs and organs are set apart for his service as the members of Christ. And in all of these respects, it gave me a sense of baptism as something that has weight here and now and in an ongoing way, which is a surprising thing to take from a conversion, as it were, to a pedo-baptist position, which would seem to throw things into the distant past of childhood. But actually, I think it, it helped me to think of it as something that is enduringly relevant in the same way as adoption is. That adoption is a declaration that we can constantly return to because it's a constant reminder of our standing in God's family and the relationship that we can return to whenever we feel besieged by sin or doubt or our own failures, that this is something that God has set up as a rock for us to cling to. Yeah, the the uh, efficacy of baptism is not tied to the moment of its administration. It's continuing, continuingly efficacious. Um, uh, let me uh, uh, move ahead to your current activities. You you've just uh, published a book that you co-authored co with Andrew Wilson uh, about Exodus, and uh, tell us a little bit about that book. Ah, yes. Um, yeah, a number of years back, um, over Lent, often I try and set up a project that I do to um, to really push me to think about some Christian themes or something like that more deeply than I have done before, or some area of service, whatever it is. And I'll give up certain things and I'll take up something new. A few years back, I decided I would set myself the challenge of 40 Days of Exodus, which was a project of going through stories of the Old Testament and the New Testament and showing how the theme of Exodus is repeated at various points within the biblical narrative and how it's a unifying theme, but also how it plays out in these specific cases. So the story of Noah, the story of Abraham going into Canaan or going into Egypt from Canaan, and the story of Jacob in the house of Laban, the story of um, of Rahab, the story of the battle of Aphek and the capture of the ark and taking it to the land of the Philistines, all these sorts of stories and showing how each one of them contains these Exodus themes. Now, it proved to be overly ambitious. 
I had um, <laughs> towards the end of it, the posts were each about four, five thousand words in length. And that was a bit too much to produce, churn out one of those every single day. So I ended up reaching 22 and then ending just before I finished the post on David that just ballooned beyond um, all reasonable size. So I ended up abandoning that process, but that project, but occasionally returning to the subject at, in various articles for different sites. But it's something that's I wanted to return to at some point. A few years ago, um, Andrew Wilson, who does the Mere Fidelity podcast with me, contacted me and he said, I've been reading through your series on Exodus and just finding it so helpful and stimulating. Would you be interested in writing a book on the subject? And so the suggestion was that he wrote a book using the notes that I set up within that original series and then continued into the New Testament and all the way through. And so I wrote an extended um, set of notes for the parts that I hadn't covered within the, the post I'd, posts I'd written for the blog. And then he developed all of this into a book that I went through and um, added certain bits, took out others. I wrote about 150,000 words of notes and it was knocked down to 40,000 words of readable, accessible text, which hopefully will give people a sense of just how dense and um, integrated this theme of Exodus is within the biblical text, that everywhere you go, you can find it. It has a depth and a presence within the text that witnesses to the unity of God's work throughout history, witnesses to the meaning of these different events as they're connected to each other typologically and also shows the way in which Christ's work is the culmination of all that has come before and also plays out in what happens later. And the book is designed to give people a taster of, of what that involves. It very much betrays the extensive influence of um, Jordan's work and your own work in the way that I approach scripture and the imagination that um, scripture, I think, unleashes with the way that it approaches these themes and it develops these things throughout the, the scope of its, its narrative. I found the process of writing the book to be a surprisingly easy one because I'd written most of the notes already and then Andrew developed those and I went through those with him. But it was a, a great pleasure to be able to explore these themes and to make them accessible for people who may never have encountered them in that sort of form before. It's been encouraging to hear back from people who have read the book, just hearing how um, stimulated they have been by seeing these themes, how it's encouraged them to go back to read the Bible anew, to explore certain areas that they'd found dry and to see within those the... Um, to see a charged and a thrilling um, account of or witness to God's themes of um, redemption and to this continuing deliverance that occurs throughout the biblical text. So that's what I was hoping to do with the book. Um, and it's been heartening to hear that for certain people that has been the effect it's had. Yeah, what well, it's a it's a wonderful book. Um, those Anyone listening to the podcast who has not gotten it yet needs to do that immediately. Um, one of the things I really appreciated about it was the uh, the simplicity of it. I know that you had a lot more material, as you've just said, than you were able to get in. But I think the result is that you have um, a, a fairly accessibly length book with short chapters, questions at the end of each chapter that is set up, could... Uh, as a as a perfect vehicle for a Bible study, and uh, because of that format, uh, you have the opportunity to uh, teach people how to read the Bible who wouldn't ever pick up a textbook of hermeneutics, uh, wouldn't know what to do with the textbook of hermeneutics, um, but uh, they'll they'll learn to 
uh, be alert to things in Scripture that they wouldn't be alert to otherwise. And I think it's a tremendously helpful tool for the church. And hopefully, like Jordan's work did for me, it will whet people's appetite to find more out for themselves because we barely scrape the surface of what is there within the text. But it should hopefully give people a, a sense of certain avenues that they could explore. And as they explore those, they'll find so much more than we actually mention. Yeah, uh, I know that you, you gave a talk here in Birmingham when you visited uh, last, well, in March. Um, and uh, you taught a Theopolis course. You did a week, uh, or sorry, an evening teaching on Exodus. And the feedback I heard, I wasn't able to be there, but the feedback I heard was people went away from that thinking, uh, golly, I missed all that. I wonder what else I missed in the Bible. I need to start reading much more carefully than I've been reading and noticing things I haven't been noticing. So yeah, uh, as you say, that's been the effect of uh, Jim Jordan's work for me over the years is just uh, constantly uh, refreshing my desire to be attentive to what's actually on the page and to try to try to try to dig deeper into what uh, into God's revelation to us. I want to ask you too about your uh, the other project you're working on that uh, will be out sometime next year. Um, Airs together. It's uh, on the theology of the sexes, which is the topic that you covered here uh, for our Easter term intensive course. And let me say parenthetically another plug: uh, those who are listening to the podcast who have not gotten a copy of those lectures, uh, you can get that on our website at theopolisinstitute.com. And it's a, a, a tremendous series of lectures on the theology of the sexes uh, and uh, rooted in the kind of biblical theology that uh, Alistair has been talking about, that uh, both Alistair and I have learned from Jim Jordan. But I wonder if you could uh, talk a little bit about the origins of that book and what you're trying to accomplish in that book. Yes. Um, the origin of the book was actually in commenting on a particular thread, I think it was over on Scott McKnight's blog, getting into a discussion there about certain issues of um differences between the sexes when it comes to friendship. It was a discussion that had Scott McKnight was interested, posted some of my thoughts as a blog post of its own, and then ended up in a discussion with um, with some others. And Justin Taylor was impressed with this, and he said, would you be interested in writing a book on the subject? Now, I've been looking at the issue of... Um, the theology of the sex is out of the corner of my eye for quite some time, largely because it's one of those areas where so much of our theology comes down to earth and it's a confluence of our views about how theology intersects with society. It um, brings together our understanding of how we read scripture, how we understand scripture and its authority within the life of the church. It brings up our principles of ethics, how we understand wisdom playing out and um, the approach of application. It's something that involves the integration of the various different areas of human knowledge, whether it's biology or sociology or philosophy, um, and how we integrate those into a theological um, study of particular subjects. So it's always interested me for that sort of reason as something that really manifests many of our deeper commitments and helps us to work through those. The other thing that has often struck me is that within the debates that we have about the theology of the sexes, there's been such an emphasis upon a few key texts. And you have these things also in debates around um, the associated debates around marriage and same-sex relations, these sorts of things. We have a particular set of clobber texts or something like that, or we have a set of texts within Scripture that are these trunks upon which we rest this whole system. And yet, when you look at what that approach has led us to, it's tended to bring us to a position where each one of those trunks is under such a great deal of stress that we end up coming down to little terms. So what does head mean? What does exercise authority over mean? What does um, the woman's desire mean? Or what does it mean that the woman is a helper? All these sorts of questions, which 
ultimately are not easily answered if that's all that you have to go on. And it struck me that what's involved here is a particular posture towards scripture and dealing with scripture in the sort of way that Jordan and others have helped me to work towards. It struck me that this is just entirely contrary to that sort of thing. What you see within Jordan's work, I think, is an understanding not of these isolated trunks bearing up this great system in a proof text type fashion, but of the vast root system of scripture, which can support a lot of weight, but it's distributed throughout a whole network. And as I look through scripture, this is one of the things that struck me, that themes of the sexes are found throughout the text in places that would not seem to be given much attention. So within the book of Proverbs, for instance, the book of Proverbs begins with a young son who is reflecting upon the teaching of his father and mother, having to leave his father and mother and make the choice of a wife. And then it ends with the the wife who is the glorious wife, who is wise, who has her full house and has spread out into the world. And that's very much a gendered pattern for thinking about the whole subject of wisdom. Likewise, in something like the book of Exodus, it is framed, the opening chapters are very much framed around the story of new birth, whether that's the birth of Moses and his deliverance as as an infant. But beyond that, the birth of Israel, that Israel is the firstborn taken from the womb, that the opening of the Red Sea, that that is the bringing out of Israel as a birth type event. And then elsewhere in scripture, I think we see these events playing out. We, we've discussed in other contexts, John's gospel, which has marital themes going all the way through it. Um, same thing with a book like Revelation, that Christ is the bridegroom and the significance of the bride. These are crucial themes. And then within these debates, I also recognize that many books that did not seem to speak directly to the controversies were fairly neglected. So why is it that we have the book of Song of Songs in the heart of the Bible, a book that is about the relationship between a man and a woman and the love that exists between them? Why isn't that given more weight within our discussions? Now, often that's because we're so focused upon the points of contention that we narrow our attention to those particular issues. But yet when we have a broad-based positive account of a theology of the sexes. I think it gives us a lot more insight into those specific questions than we have if those are just isolated from everything else. Beyond that, the other thing that struck me is that within the debates, hardly anything is said about the wider framework within which these debates take place and also the way in which um, other areas of human knowledge can come to bear upon our discussions. So hardly anyone in these discussions says says much about biology. Very little is said about sociology. When we talk about issues like women in the church, there's very little in-depth work done on ecclesiology to frame that discussion. Likewise, when people talk about gender and the Trinity and gender and the identity of God, often they're not working with strong rootedness on both sides of those questions, bringing those two areas together. Rather, it can just be um, the whipping up of a particular area of Christian theology into the maelstrom of the gender debates, which makes it very difficult to think well about these things. And so for me, it was learning to think about that issue, not as something that we're fixated upon as the outset, that that's our dominating question, but rather coming at the question from a a broad and intense rootedness in many areas of Christian and wider thought, and then being able to present the questions that we usually get stuck with in ways that maybe can help to move beyond the impasses, that um, break down some of the the problems that we'd otherwise have as we bring in this broader peripheral vision that tends to be neglected. And so that's what I hope that the book will do, um, give people principles of wisdom for going forward within 
a context where these questions are very live, not just in the more narrow debates that we might have about women in ministry or something like that, but on the brink of a transhumanist revolution, um, thinking about new forms of reproduction, what does that mean for our understanding of what we are as human beings? These are the sort of questions that we'll be facing in the next 50 years. And I think those are the questions that I'm hoping that I'll lay down some of the groundwork to prepare us for. So from your description, I'm assuming this is a 10-volume work? <laughs> it's 225,000 words, so it's fairly lengthy. But the amount of t- the amount of things that it has to cover within it, it's pretty abridged when it comes to the sheer scale of the mountain it's supposed to climb. Right. Right. So, but but uh, you're the setting setting the biblical framework is a is a central part of what you're trying to do, which can then be extended to some of these other issues that you might not be able to deal with as extensively. Yes, and it's one of those areas where I felt most disappointed with the standard debate. There has been very limited scope given to scripture framing of the discussions. Even when people people who do use scripture quite extensively, their use of scripture can be overwhelmingly framed by our questions rather than seeing what emerges from scripture itself and that's what i'm really hoping to do to be attentive to scripture itself to learn to think on scripture's terms and then as the issues are framed on scripture's own terms to think about how that might reframe some of the debates that we're having within the current context uh let me ask one last uh one last question you're going to be um Moving to the states, uh, you hope within the, within the next several months. Um, uh, what brings you to the states? And also, uh, you're going to be working with a couple of other organizations. Can uh, you tell us a little bit about those groups and what you'll be doing with them? Yes, I think um, moving to the states has always been something that I probably had a sense that I would probably do at some point. Um, it's been that way for quite some time, um, probably over 10 years now, partly because I realised that almost all my primary theological interlocutors were within the US. I think 80% of the readers of my blog are within North America. And so that is the world I'm involved in. And I think I've increasingly... Um, felt the need to move in the direction of deepening online connections into real-world connections, and so trying to root myself as much as possible. Whereas often within the UK, there is um, a distance from the context into which I'm speaking, because I'm within the Church of England. Most of the people that I'm engaging with are within very different contexts, and so I think it's important for me to move in the direction of those contexts, if those are the ones I'm most embedded within. Um, But beyond that, there's a more immediate reason, which is I'm hoping to marry and settle down in Philadelphia with a lovely woman. Um, And that is um, something that prompted me to look for various forms of possibilities of employment over in the U.S., ended up um, in involved with um, the Greystone Institute, which was the first to, um, to propose employment to me. Um, Mark Garcia, who runs that, I was very excited with the sort of work he was doing. Um, also with the way in which our visions of theology and um, engagement within society in the areas that we're exploring even within our work. Both of us are working uh, on subjects to do with the theology of the sexes and these sorts of things. It was a deep encouragement to meet him and to interact with him and learning more about the work of the Greystone Institute and other people who are involved in that has been very encouraging to me as it it seems to intersect very well with the sort of work that I'm doing already. It's always... A struggle when 
you feel that to get paid employment or to get some sort of job that you need to draw away from your vocation. But it was encouraging talking with Mark and um, Greystone Institute to think of being involved with a group that would actually facilitate and enable me to do what I was already doing in a far better and more stimulated and supported way. I've also been encouraged to interact with people like Michael Sacassus, who works with Greystone as well, does work on the area of technology, which has been an area that I've been increasingly concerned and interested in, concerned about and interested in over the last few years. Also, the Davenant Institute is another group that I've known for quite some time, um, attended their first convivium a number of years back, and got to know Brad Littlejohn while he was studying in Edinburgh, um, doing his PhD there under Oliver O'Donovan. Met with him and his family and have been involved with the Davenant Institute in various ways of written chapters for books. One of them will be coming out very shortly. And also, more recently, teaching their summer programs, which are courses introducing Christian wisdom to a younger audience, maybe early 20s to 30s, and talking through various texts that we read in fellowship with one another, um, things like C.S. Lewis's The Discarded Image or um, Abolition of Man, Oliver O'Donovan's Ways of Judgment, some parts of Calvin's Institutes or um, Asinus's Commentary on the Heidelberg Catechism, all these sorts of texts that are important texts for coming to grips with theological and um, philosophical concepts that Christians can really use to engage with the world well. So we've been trying to move beyond mere worldview to wisdom, something that we're formed into in community with one another. We spend a lot of time eating together, working together, and that's been a great encouragement and a great joy as well. I've greatly appreciated the opportunity to just spend a couple of weeks in beautiful surroundings with a stimulating and um, interested group of young people who want to find out about these concepts in and these theological truths and areas of Christian wisdom in a deeper way, who want to think about how to bring that wisdom to bear upon their specific situations, thinking about their longer-term vocations and their callings in life. And that's been a great encouragement for me. Um, also keeping in contact with many of them after they finished the course has been has been great. Often as you're, if you're a speaker who moves around from various places, you don't have that long-term interaction with people that you've worked with. And having that, that longer-term interaction has been has been heartening seeing that um, the things that we discussed and studied are having some longer term fruit. And so I'm hoping that I'll be involved in many of those in the coming years. I have three more coming up this summer, um, two in um, South Carolina and then another in um, California, which the first ones are taking place in June and then the later one in, in August. That has been a great delight. And then more recently, it's been um, yeah, my first encounter with you and the Theopolis Institute was in March over in, in Birmingham. Yeah, I, the picture, I, I think I've told you the picture that I have uh, is uh, Greystone Institute has one limb, Davenant Institute has another limb, and we've got a limb. And you have one limb to yourself, and we're all pulling you three different directions <laughs> We're really, really happy to have a grip on one limb and uh, very much look forward to uh, your ongoing contributions to our work. Uh, thanks for taking the time to introduce yourself to our podcast audience and uh, look forward to having you as a regular in the future. Thank you. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. 
You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.